welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. As always, we're joined by John Eastart, Director of Research, John Turk, our Central Bank and Rates Analyst, and Bart Osterveld, who covers sovereign credit. This week, got a number of notable things. We'll probably keep it infrastructure. We're going to get a quick update from John East. We'll touch on the Eurogroup uh, Finance Minister's meeting later this week. And then we'll touch on Turkey and Russia, which both uh, have been in the news in the EM world. But as always, let's start in Washington. John, it's a slow-moving train and, um, you know, nothing revolutionary. But can you give us the latest on infrastructure? Good afternoon. Yes. So on Monday, the president met with a bipartisan coterie of lawmakers at the White House. There were some interesting picks. A lot of them are not in a position really to drive infrastructure policy. They don't necessarily chair committees. There were a couple exceptions. But after the meeting, the president promised that he was going to send staff to Capitol Hill to continue bipartisan negotiations this week and next. Also happening in the backdrop are three distinct bipartisan groups, which are trying to see if there is a path forwards on a bipartisan infrastructure plan focusing on traditional infrastructure. The first is a Republican working group. Its uh, members are in flux. It just began work, which does not give me high hopes for a finished product. Uh, I could say the same thing for the other two groups. But it is a proposal that's probably going to come in between $600 and $800 billion, and it will focus on user fees, which pay for discrete aspects of a bill. So what does that mean? A potential vehicle miles travel tax to deal with the number of uh, electric cars and the rising number, and potentially a gas tax increase so that highways are paid for by highway users. There would also probably be trucking fees in there as well. Water infrastructure is something that also made it in. That's something Democrats have really wanted, and the Republican working group is discussing that. They would levy some type of rate fee to pay for water infrastructure. They would you know, address ports with port fees and, and other things tied to commercial activity there. But these are in the very, very early stages. You also have today a bipartisan meeting with about 20 uh, members of the Senate, both parties. I'm not sure what's going to come out of those discussions. And in terms of the third group, you have Senator Cassidy of Louisiana, who's taking a somewhat unorthodox approach, but one that I think makes sense in some ways. And he's working with governors and other lawmakers. In particular, he's working with Governor Hogan of Maryland. Governor Hogan is a centrist Republican, and he has a lot of clout in the Republican Governors Association and the National Governors Association. But it seems to me like it's going to take a while for all of these things to coalesce if they ever do. And it reminds me of the seven to eight years that Republicans had to come up with an alternative to Obamacare, and they never got everything in order, the train is moving on Capitol Hill. So Democrats are hoping to start releasing aspects of a broader bill by the end of this month, or at least by the end of May. And Republicans are hoping that they're going to have some type of proposal or proposals, plural, by the end of this month as well. That's not a lot of time. 
you know, with with all of the uncertainty that's out there, we're obviously still waiting on, you know, the second half of this package and, and the details that will be. But, you know, it is slow moving. Is the expectation end of Q3, beginning of Q4? That is still my expectation. I don't see anything to change that. But negotiations, I think, just take longer than people would hope. The Speaker is hoping that the House will move at least the first part of an infrastructure package by uh, July 4th. We also have the President coming to do an address before a joint session of Congress on the 28th, where he's going to make another push for infrastructure. And so if, if bipartisan negotiations somehow manage to be going well, he may address that in his address before Congress, but I suspect that they're going to collapse and that Democrats are going to move to reconciliation, and we're going to see a series of bills, maybe as few as two, could be more. Right now, it just seems that would be the path of least resistance, because I don't know that you can get enough Republicans on board a traditional infrastructure package to offset the number of progressives you might lose. So there's really a math issue and there's a timing issue. Yeah, so how many how many can you lose in the House? Well, you cannot lose more than two as of this week. That, at some point this summer, will probably become three, but three members on the Democratic side. That assumes you pick up no members on the Republican side to offset Democratic defections. I suspect if it came to that, you would not pick up members on the Republican side to offset a meltdown on the House floor. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you very much, John, for that update. You know, one of the things that I, I found interesting was talking about how closely the Biden administration is monitoring inflation in the United States and looking at the impacts, the inflationary impacts of these spending bills. John Turk, you know, we wrote in the note this week that we're moving from a period of re-rating growth to a period of re-rating inflation. This week's CPI on Tuesday, what, what conclusions can you draw from that? been a very interesting transition in, in a market narrative sense where, you know, I think at especially initially after Georgia and early Q1, you know, the market was very focused on kind of this readjustment in growth where it had previously expected a growth rate between 4 to 6% for 2021. That was also seen in the Fed dots in December to be, you know, 4.2%. And then after Georgia and the vaccine rollout started to pick up, we kind of re-rated growth from maybe 4 to 6 to 6 to 8. And then the market kind of got very comfortable with the idea that, you know, growth is going to be 6 to 8% this year. And that means that in terms of the spillovers from positive data reports, it kind of, the focus kind of shifts towards the inflationary side. And I think that's what we've seen over the past few weeks, thinking about like, you know, especially the, in the last couple of weeks, especially thinking about like what data beats have manifested themselves in the market, where we've kind of transitioned from, you know, a Q1 world where it was, a, it was taken as a bear steepener to a Q2 world where it's been you know, outside of today, it's been more of a, a bear flattener where the belly of the bond market has kind of led the weakness as opposed to the back end. And, um, you know, I think that now that we're getting more comfortable, now I think we're going through that growth free rate that we had on the inflation side where the market's now like, okay, we expected two to two and a half. And in that world, we kind of know what the end game is. The Fed's going to look through it. The Fed's going to accommodate it. The Fed's going to pro-cyclically expand into it. But if inflation was to remain sticky, maybe 275 at three, that's a world that's more challenging. Then that's a world that maybe the Fed's new reaction function doesn't fully get off the ground and the market starts to anticipate hikes, you know, as early as 2022. Um, and I think now that there's a lot priced in that trade, and I think, you know, kind of following the retail sales report we saw today, which was, you know, humongous, is that the market's kind of getting more comfortable with both the growth and the inflation outlook even on the tail side as well, because I think that's been a big part of it, has been the market's kind of, you know, 
orientation towards the tails, especially until there's uncertainty into the reopening and all this fiscal. So, it, you know, net net, it does seem that the market now is fully comfortable on the growth side and is now getting more comfortable on the inflation side, um, even into these hot data points. Bart, you know, in Europe, we have the Eurogroup of Finance Ministers meeting later this week, you know, some struggles with the next-gen EU package. Uh, what can you tell us? Yeah, uh, thank you, Chris. So the finance ministers meeting is a regularly scheduled one. It's not an emergency summit or anything like that. So just to, to clarify, you know, it's a normal scheduled meeting. On the agenda are kind of routine topics, including taking stock of the progress towards the banking union, but also talking about the prospects of the euro as a digital currency. So interesting topics, and we'll see what comes out. What is not formally on the agenda, but what I expect a lot of time will be spent on is that it's for the anticipated timeline. It's crunch time for next gen eu two weeks from tomorrow the member states need to have submitted their plans for how to spend the next gen eu funds over the next few years a lot of those plans are well advanced a lot of them are in the public domain some good news is that the plans of greece spain and italy so three of the countries that will need this aid most are among the most advanced and most thorough some of the less good news is that you know even if you do all of this right and you comply with all the rules and guidance from the EU and you spend, you know, 37% on on greening your economy and another 20% on on the new digital economy for a country like Spain if they and if they absorb all the funds and send them at the right projects it amounts to about 1.5% of GDP next year so it's it's limited limited in terms of budgetary relief but for some countries, and I, I use Greece again as, as an example, it might, with it, they're calling it Greece 2.0, it may well trigger some transformational investments into the economy. So that's the spending side. Another crunch point is coming on the funding side. In order to fund this, the EU needs to be able to issue a lot more debt in the markets than it traditionally has. That's called the own resources decision. That needs to be approved by all 27 member states as well. Uh, they're about halfway done with that. So about half of the parliaments have approved this at the national level. And there are some prospective choke points there that are visible. One is Poland, where it has yet to be taken up by Parliament. Another is the Netherlands, where uh, we're between governments, and it's unclear when that can be taken up. And so moving out of the developed world and into EM, today is a, is a really important day in, in Russia. We've been monitoring the Biden administration's, you know, review of Trump-era policy and, you know, their decision-making on imposing additional sanctions and prohibitions on the trading of sovereign debt issued by Russia. Today's sanctions, you know, made a lot of headlines. They're characterized as severe, sharp, harsh, you name it, any negative word. In your eyes, Bart, I mean, are these as severe as the headlines are saying? No, they're not. You know, one way to look at that is to say the Biden administration wants to keep plenty of escalation options open. So it's an opening salvo. They expanded the list of targeted entities and individuals quite significantly. So that that is mostly a burden on these individuals to the extent they have holdings of cash or real estate abroad, broadly in, in the West. It's also a compliance headache for the banks, the Western banks, where these accounts might be held. But that doesn't create financial stability risks for, for Russia per se. Uh, on the prohibition for U.S financial entities to uh, participate in primary auctions of the Russian sovereign and affiliated entities. So when Russia sells bonds or ruble-denominated bonds into its own market, you know, U.S. companies cannot buy those in the first round. That is really a shot across the bow. You know, one, foreign investors only comprise about 20% of the ruble-denominated bond market. Two, 
Russia has limited financing needs for the year. It's about $60 billion at the at the sovereign level, another 60 at the corporate and bank level. It can finance those easily with participation of just Russian entities. And then finally, you know, Russia's balance sheet is exceptionally strong. That's 20% debt to GDP and more than a third of GDP in, uh, in FX reserves. So this doesn't cause financing issues for the Russian sovereign or affiliated entities. In the short run, it may be slightly more expensive for them to issue that debt. It is more instructive, I think, as an indicator that the Biden administration is considering a range of options and, uh, as a shot across the boat. So the argument, right, so somebody who's listening to this and says, okay, sure, so implementation of this, you know, it's, it's really not going to affect Russia all that much. You, you brought up the fact that Russian banks can buy these bonds and then sell them on the secondary market. You know, what do we say to, you know, the point that the administration, the Biden administration is being more hawkish than perhaps we anticipated? And the fact that all this leaves now in terms of escalation is the nuclear option. What do you say? What do you say to those two points? I disagree with the latter. So I don't know if they're being hawkish. They're organized. Uh, you know, they want to respond to Russian misbehavior as they see it in an organized way, including keeping escalation options open. One thing I took away from the the statement today out of the White House is this notion that sanctions are a tool. They're not foreign policy itself, right? So they highlighted other things, including military, diplomatic, and taking national security measures with allies, including cyber statecraft, for example. And that, you know, the answer to Russian misbehavior isn't always going to be increased sanctions. In as financial market participants, we're always highly focused on sanctions. You may find situations like if Russia has an incursion in, into Ukraine, for example, the response may be cyber statecraft or some other, you know, coordinated pseudo-military response uh, with allies. It's not always going to be sanctions, and I think the White House statement today tried try to prepare people for that. And, and so then, John Turk, you know, thinking about other reactions to today's events, then what does the CDR, the central bank, think about this, and does this force them to take, you know, a different policy path? I don't think so. I think the CBR on balance has been, you know, relatively hawkish central bank. They've kind of already, you know, in a forward guidance sense, already engineered their engineered their path back to a neutral policy setting. You know, I think that because inflation has been temporarily above target, I think they'll be cautious. If you know the current, we had a pretty weak current account number last week, and if the current account, you know, has is not as robust as it was, and that has a feedback into prices. I think that's something that they would be concerned or be watching. But, you know, I think that they have a relatively, you know, prudent, cautious, hawkish outlook to begin with. So I think in the near term, it doesn't change that much. They seem, you know, pretty set on this return to, you know, a 6% policy rate over their forecast horizon. So I think that, you know, it doesn't it certainly won't make them more dovish, but I don't think it marginally makes them more hawkish either. Yeah, and so then what this says to us, Bart, is really we have to watch out for that next, you know, geopolitical misstep. And so the idea here is that being at the doorstep of, and, and I understand that there are non-sanction options, you know, but talking about what the nuclear option is, quote unquote, you know, would be something related to cutting them off from SWIFT or, you know, sanctions on energy and finance. What would trigger that would be some sort of unknown geopolitical misstep that is significant from Putin. And so that's really the area that we're watching, you know, Ukraine, Crimea. But outside of that, it's still kind of a wait and see. 
one thing on that, Chris. A best case outcome for the Biden administration after today's actions, which I'm not expecting, but would be for Russia to withdraw some of the troops from the Ukrainian border. So I'm not expecting that, but that would be, you know, if you're talking about the desired reaction function, you know, that, that would probably fill them with a sense of success. If Russia invades Ukraine, you will see the kind of escalatory measures, including economic sanctions that you're talking about. Or SWIFT is often mentioned, the ability for Russians to invest in real estate abroad, the gas trade. You know, there, there are multiple nuclear options one might think of. So then finally, you know, moving to another EM country in a very interesting moment, first meeting of the new CBRT governor in Turkey. The position's obviously very politicized, right, John? But seems like this first meeting, you know, didn't really result in anything outlandish. There weren't exactly so many fireworks. I mean, it's interesting, you know, I, I, the headline grabber after the meeting is that they, you know, they dropped their tightening bias, you know, that that Agbal had that further monetary tightening would be done if needed. And obviously that came out as Erdogan didn't put this guy in high grace. That's not the intention. But you know, I think that the market had a pretty interesting reaction to it, you know, kind of as those headlines came in, you know, dollar tried spike and now is kind of taking it all back and is and then the Turkish lira is up a little bit on the day. So, you know, I think that it's one of those things where, you know, the statement and and some of the communique is kind of, you know, a lot given off a little bit of a exhale moment where it's some of the craziness has been avoided for now. You know, yes, they've dropped their tightening bias, but there's still a key part of the reaction function is to maintain positive real interest rates. That was obviously a concern. And they still maintained the stance that, you know, it's desirable for policy to bring um, price stability back in a permanent way closer to their 5% inflation target. So, you know, it wasn't exactly, you know, monetary orthodoxy just completely kicked out, even though they did drop the tightening bias. And so it was like kind of one of those meetings where a lot was feared and not so much came. But of course, it'll take a lot more than just, you know, a Bloomberg television interview and one MPC meeting for the market to actually really trust this guy. And, and Bart, I mean, what do you think from really like a credit rating perspective, looking at the country and thinking about the next, say, three to six months, where did the risks lie? Yeah, well, the, the risks to the credit, to the Turkish credit, has, they haven't really changed in, in a decade and a half. You know, the country has a weak external position. If the ruble is weak, uh, it's a quick path to refinancing problems for Turkish corporates and banks. They can muddle through this year if outcomes are reasonable, you know, including on the growth front and if the lira remains within in some sort of non-panic bound. Uh, but, you know, one aspect of this, yeah, as soon as the Turkish population loses confidence in monetary policy, it starts buying gold, dollars, euros, any strong foreign currency rapidly. So you could tell the confidence of the Turkish population in its monetary policy by their own holdings. And, you know, I've yet to see that confidence kind of permanently restored. And that would be important for the country. If it doesn't muddle through and, and for example, uh, needs some assistance from the IMF, that's an area where every come to pass. We've talked a lot in the past about its geopolitical position, right? It's, it's Turkey. Turkey's in a disagreement with every country but Qatar, pretty much. And so their diplomatic position would need some, uh, some shoring up. Turkey is one of those EMs where you can see a lot in terms of local FX deposits and things like that, that, you know, the populace does have a big part of the uh, monetary policy stances. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.